Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the 16th episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. Michelle Dennity is joining the Smarter Markets hosting team this week, and my guest will be billionaire financier Robert Friedland, returning to Smarter Markets to discuss what it will take to green the global economy. From energy policy to sourcing the raw materials needed to build out the green revolution. But first, I'm pleased to introduce Michelle Dennity, the first of two new hosts who will be joining me on the Smarter Markets hosting team. Michelle, welcome aboard. Thanks so much, Eric. I'm glad to be here. We'll tell you more about Michelle's background and the role she'll be playing as one of two new hosts joining the Smarter Markets hosting team right after the feature interview with Robert Friedland. Robert gave me a terrific interview, which ran quite a bit longer than planned, an hour and a half of Robert's insights by the time we got through the fascinating subject of what it's really going to take to green the global economy. The original plan was to edit that down to a reasonable length for a podcast episode, but the content was just too good to throw any of it out. So we decided instead to break it up into two parts, with the second part airing next week right here on Smarter Markets. Eric's interview with billionaire financier Robert Friedland is coming up next. And now with this week's special guest, Here's your host, Eric Townsend. Robert, you were our first guest here on Smarter Markets, and it's a real pleasure for me to have you back because, frankly, after Camel Polo in the Snow, we had to drop the idea of asking our guests for a story from their career because nobody could top Camel Polo. So you've got the title in that regard. So welcome back, sir. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you, Eric. I want to talk to you today about what it will really take to green the global economy. And the reason I wanted to talk to you about this, Robert, is just my own experience in talking to a lot of people, is sometimes the people who have the most passion for the planet, for environmentalism, for responsibility, don't always have the business experience to know what it's going to take to pull this thing off in the real world. And we've got a heck of a big challenge in front of us because, frankly, our society has not given adequate attention to taking care of the planet. We do need to green the global economy. This is real. We've only got one planet. We've got to take care of it. But what is it really going to take? And, you know, I think maybe we should start with understanding what I think are fallacies that some people who are very well-meaning and have the best of intentions kind of promote this idea that, look, wind and solar can solve everything. You don't need anything else. Uh, What is it really going to take from your perspective in order to green the global economy? Well, the whole premise or the question that you're asking touches on very broad philosophical questions that we have to analyze because human beings on this planet are a part of the planet. And so we have to define what the mission is on this spaceship that we all inhabit. We have uh, seven and maybe eight billion people coming on this planet. Uh, So what is the question? Are we trying to feed and clothe all of the people on the planet? Are we want to make sure they have adequate nutrition and access to a good life? Do we want to extend human lifespan? Do we want human beings to live a more fulfilled existence? And how does that question interrelate with the physical aspects of anthropomorphic activity on this very fragile ecosystem that we inhabit together with animal life? It's not just human life, and there's also plant life. And so we we have to step back and really understand what is the question here? What are we really looking for? If we accept the premise that we want to, say, clean urban air, because most of humanity is moving to cities and they're breathing toxic air, or people in urban centers are drinking toxic water, we still have to step back and say, what is it that we're trying to achieve? And that's usually described as 
some form of sustainability, that the planet gets to a carrying capacity that can go on without damaging human or animal life or the oceans, for that matter, for the long term. So we have to put the, the very question has to be put into context. Are you worried about human beings or are you just worried about the air and the water? Well, Robert, let's assume that the objective is to make the planet a better place for human beings for all aspects of our lives. Energy has been a a key aspect of this whole story. Is it plausible? Is it possible to replace fossil fuel consumption completely with renewables, wind, solar, geothermal, things that don't damage the environment at all? Is that a realistic goal that we can get to? If the fundamental premise is Can we generate energy in a more sustainable way? Absolutely, as a species, we definitely can do that. And can we eliminate the consumption of fossil fuels completely in that process? Nearly entirely. We're still going to need fossil fuels for making chemicals and a lot of other things that benefit humanity. I don't think the goal is to drive the production of fossil fuels to absolute zero. But we certainly want to reduce global warming gas as a reasonable proposition, because it's very difficult to model the ultimate impact of global warming gas. We have to be five years or 10 years too early, not one day too late in that regard. And so what is it going to take to achieve the goal of greening the economy by, let's say, not completely eliminating fossil fuels, but eliminating them as a predominant source of energy and replacing them to the maximum extent necessary with cleaner energy sources. What does it take? How long does it take? What's involved? Well, I I will shamelessly quote Bill Gates, who I had the pleasure of hearing speak. And, you know, he talked about two categories of people that worry him. The first category is the category of human beings, though educated, and well-fed, deny the existence entirely of the whole question. You know, there's always an alternate theory that global warming is caused by sunspot activity or other natural phenomenon. And that might, in fact, be true. It's possible that human beings are not the root cause of global warming. It's possible. But if we're wrong about it and, and we get too far down the road, it may become irreversible due to human activity. So it seems a rational gamble to do everything we can on a global scale to prevent a catastrophe. But the problem is it's the second category of people that worry Bill Gates the most. And that's the people that just don't understand how fantastically difficult it is going to be to truly green the global supply chain. That is a completely different order of magnitude. You can become a believer and you can protest in the streets. You can be a local activist, but a a firm grasp of science and looking at 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 the scale of the problem is required because the undertaking is going to be absolutely enormous. And that's why I think that the the fact that the Chinese government, uh, one of the largest economies in the world, has declared with no hedge that they intend to achieve a a carbon neutral status in only 40 years. That's just an enormous commitment of enormous significance to the world, to the planet and world ecology. And it presents a very interesting series of, of challenges and implications for the whole global supply chain and indeed all of finance. Let's quantify Bill Gates' statement. You said he's afraid of people who don't understand how hard this is going to be, how big of a challenge it's going to be. What are some of the aspects of this agenda of of greening the global economy, of decarbonization, that are, let's say, harder than it looks to the average Joe? What, What is it that people aren't seeing? Well, it's always the question of cradle to grave analysis or womb to tomb analysis, or sperm to germ analysis, because we've started to look at all of the questions of global warming gas. How how is it created? What global warming gas comes from human activity? You just take, for example, animal husbandry. Human beings have been growing animals and utilizing animal life for their benefit for thousands and thousands 
of years. We take a look at the uh, wildlife that's get eaten in Chinese markets, for example, convincing the Chinese not to eat all manner of wildlife from which we may have had a viral outbreak that went global, for example, or convincing Americans not to love their steak or their turkey. I mean, I wonder what turkeys think as those days come up on uh, Thanksgiving, huh? How many of them have to die? So you don't want to shoot your dog, but when your dog is sitting there panting, like, (laughs) you know, he's exhaling carbon dioxide. And so a very large fraction of the global warming gas is related to animal husbandry. Can we even get people to stop that practice? Because so many people make their livelihoods in animal husbandry. Our relationship to the animal kingdom has to be reexamined if you take the proposition that you really want to you know, reduce global warming gas. Now, maybe you can leave that alone. That system alone might be responsible for a good 20% of global warming gas or more. But if you leave that unmolested and you continue to drink milk from dairy cows and cheese, all that delicious pizza topping, it's hard to get people to get off of that. And that's a very big proportion of global warming gas right there. But if the, if the phenomenon of a greenhouse effect really gets going much further, and I think it appears by a lot of science that we're getting close, if the permafrost in Russia starts melting, then you start getting a release of methane gas and carbon dioxide into the environment as a result of the very warming of the planet. We need to keep that, that carbon dioxide locked in the permafrost in Russia, once, the, once we get to a certain point, it doesn't matter whether you eat meat or not, or whether you burn coal or not, or whether you burn oil or not, we will have gotten to a point that's potentially, potentially beyond the point where we can do anything about it. Now, if I ask you, what was the temperature of the Earth at the North Pole 50 million years ago? Virtually nobody ever gets this answer right. What was the temperature of the Earth 50 million years ago at the North Pole? Do you know, Eric? I would guess much hotter than it is now. According to modern science, the water was 94 degrees Fahrenheit. It was like a hot bathtub. And that's why, you know, you have oil on the north slope of Alaska. Uh, That's why you have oil. The Russians have even taken a nuclear submarine and put little Russian flags on the seabed near the North Pole on the theory that there's hydrocarbon up there. Northern Russia is just loaded with hydrocarbon. How could you get hydrocarbon if it was always frozen? You couldn't because you need to have algae and marine life over millennia settling into those basins and generating hydrocarbon. So the world has been much, 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 much hotter than it is now in the past. And the world has also been much, much, much colder. I mean, the, the glaciers covered all the way down to St. Louis, Missouri. When you go up and down the East Coast, New York, Washington, D.C., most of the central United States, the ice was a mile thick. <laughs> That's global colding. And that ice thick, you know, that ice, wow, a mile thick covered most of the continental United States. Not that long ago, uh, the woolly mammoth was running around and then it melted. So for us, who was the little girl in the fairy tale who wanted to have her, her porridge? She didn't want her porridge too hot, and she didn't want her porridge too cold. She wanted her porridge just right. Uh, as human beings and as animal life, we thrive in a fairly narrow temperature range. And we could get global colding in response to an asteroid hitting the Earth or global warming. We just don't want to be responsible for it as a species. If it's caused by an asteroid hitting the Earth, we better worry about that question. But it may be just a consequence of all this burning of hydrocarbon and coal. And and if it's true that we're, we're, we're warming the planet, you just don't want to take that chance. We're all in this together globally. It's just like we won't get rid of this virus until the last people get rid of the virus. We now have a global consciousness that this has affected everybody. And by the way, this virus is relatively benign compared to viruses that could spring out of nature and, and you know, sort of go global. But if you look at this as a global question, 
humanity does face this very profound question, and it's going to be very, very difficult to, to make a meaningful change. Let's talk about how we accomplish this decarbonization, getting rid of the fossil fuel consumption in order to run the economy so that we don't create greenhouse gases that eventually do us in. A big trend that we're seeing is electrification, which a lot of people don't seem to understand. Electricity is not a source of energy. It's a way of delivering energy. So we go from internal combustion engine vehicles where the energy uh, the fuel is burnt and the energy is created at the point of use. And re we replace that with a model where the fuel is burned and the energy is produced in, a, in an electrical generation plant someplace. And it's distributed through an electrical grid to where it's consumed. And in the case of vehicles, the consumption is first the charging of the battery and then eventually the discharge of that battery to allow the vehicle to operate. Is that the right way to approach this problem? Is electrification the way to go? And what are some of the aspects of it that the average person might not fully understand? Well, the alternate choice is that we all go back to the Stone Age and live in a cave and go out and hunt animals. I, I don't think there's any going back. The way the world is organized now, the only way is forward, to electrify uh, the entire world economy. Electricity, of course, exists in nature, but the question is, how is it going to be generated? How is it going to be transmitted? How is it going to be consumed to do useful work for humanity? And the whole question of electrification is so amazing and so interesting to study. You just take one example as a Thomas Alva Edison, father of a lot of the modern world, he generated his electricity by burning coal in a steam generator. And with that electrical energy working in his garage, he developed the first light bulb. The light bulb was about a foot tall. It had a tungsten carbide filament in it. And when he turned it on, he said, wow, this is amazing, electric light. He was the first person to actually see an electric light in his own hands. Can you imagine that in a garage? And then he thought, well, now what am I going to do? You obviously can't sell light bulbs. There was no place to plug them in. The market did not exist. So he went to New York City and he cut a deal with the city of New York to string those lights up Fifth Avenue. They were, they were on a DC direct current line, just like a Christmas tree line of Christmas tree lights on your tree when one would burn out though a light would burn out in a DC line. And he created a company called the New York Electric Light Illumination Company. And amazingly, before that, they were actually killing sperm whales to get their oil to illuminate the lights of the streets at night. That sperm oil burned and made very good light. And you know he didn't sell light bulbs, he sold illumination. And that was basically a penny stock when he started it. We'd have to research the year, I'd say it was around 1882. And that company became the General Electric Corporation. And, you know, the company's still around today. And Thomas Alva Edison is still remembered as a great genius, along with his contemporary, Nikola Tesla. Nikola Tesla said, well, you can't push electrical current down a long wire and have it come out the other end without a voltage loss, without a loss of energy. So he proposed alternating current. And alternating current became the second great way to use electrical energy. They had a fight over it. They were contemporaries, and, and Nikola Tesla won the debate. Because today about 97% of the electrical energy that's generated and consumed uses alternating power. And if we look at the typical American household, or we go to the developing world, we can clearly see the consumption of electrical energy per person globally does nothing but go up. So the consumption of electrical energy is an indicia of human activity, and if you will, and excuse this phrase, human progress. It's irreversible. As we have this information revolution, as we have broadband and the cloud and the sum total of human knowledge available to all, all of humanity, and as we distribute that information from satellites, we will soon have universal high-speed internet for everyone on this planet by satellite, that's still very electrically energy consumptive. So we need to generate much more power than the world is generating now, but in a much more sustainable way. 
there's an enormous amount of power in coal, stored in coal, it took billions of years to concentrate all that plant and animal matter to make that coal. Same thing with crude oil. And we've only really been burning this crude oil on a truly massive scale for a little over a century. When viewed in the, in the context of the age of this planet or the length of human activity, it's just a microsecond that we've been burning crude oil and burning coal. So we know of alternatives even well into the early part of the 19th, 20th century. We were building the Hoover Dam, big hydroelectric dams. There are lots of alternative ways to generate electrical energy. And now the process is accelerating at a dizzying speed. All kinds of efforts are underway to solve the question, to give humanity unlimited electrical energy without burning any hydrocarbon or coal. And that's going to have to be done because it really isn't so much the fact that the car is electrified, although transportation is some 60% of hydrocarbon consumption. That's trucks, planes, buses, everything that moves, 60% of hydrocarbon consumption, and therefore carbon dioxide generation. But uh, the whole way we generate the electrical energy in order to make everything has to be revolutionized. So upstream, how do we make the energy? Midstream, how do we transmit it? And then finally, the final mile, when it comes to your home, how does it get there and how do you use it? This is going to be a huge, huge undertaking that, that, you know, as a species, we're going to go through for the next 50 or 100 years. Robert, let's start with the upstream end of that as we walk through the different implications and aspects of this. You've said before, I've heard you in other interviews say, look, if you drive an electric vehicle, it doesn't mean that electricity is the source of energy. Electricity is the way it was delivered to you. If you drive an electric vehicle in China, you're really driving a coal-fired vehicle because that's the way they generate their electricity is by burning coal. If you drive the same electric vehicle in France, well, that's a nuclear-powered vehicle because France generates 70% of its electricity from nuclear power plants. How should the electricity to supply the global economy be generated? If the goal is to make the world a better place, presumably we want less pollution. Does that mean we have to go all nuclear? Does there need to be a nuclear renaissance? Is there a better way? Are there ways to advance something like, say, geothermal technology to make a safer, cleaner energy source? What's the best way to solve this upstream problem? <laughs> Well, that's a hell of a question. You know, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Let a number of technological solutions compete. We'll have a Darwinian call and see what proves to be the most sustainable long-term answer. Right now, uh, the cheapest way to generate electrical energy is solar, just solar panels. China managed to build them on such a great scale that the unit cost has come down enormously. And most of what goes into making a solar panel is very plentiful. For example, silica, the sand, is very, very plentiful. They're, they're not extremely expensive to build, and you can scale them. But of course, the problem is the sun does not shine everywhere equally, and the sun does not shine all the time. So they're a temporary solution, providing you, know, you can use your electricity only, say, four or five hours a day. Beyond that, the grid, and really uh, the electrical grid, say, in America, or the electrical grid in China, has virtually no storage capability. When you walk into a room and turn on a light, at that very instant, somewhere, a generator has to kick in and send that electrical energy to you to turn on that light. There's no storage of electrical energy in the grid. It just so happens, perhaps, that somebody else is turning off a light at that same moment that you're turning it on. And there is sort of an average of consumption. It looks like a sine wave during the day where consumption goes up in California when people turn on their air conditioners, it's hot sunny day. And then at night when people go to bed, the energy consumption goes down. So the very fact that consumption of electrical energy in the grid varies opens up the opportunity for storage. So part of the answer is to store excess energy when you don't need it. And there's a plethora of ways to store energy. Another part of the answer is to look at endless 
generation of energy. And of course, nuclear power, unfortunately, because of all the work that was done in nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons were based on either uranium or plutonium. And all of the nuclear power plants that were built post World War II, including just sort of the, the culture of building uranium-based nuclear power plants, is most unfortunate because these nuclear power plants are controversial for a number of real reasons. They, they have long-term issues with their waste, and the waste has a very long half-life. And there's just a lot of people who'd rather lay down in the road and die to stop a nuclear power plant than allow one to be built. Although they don't generate much, if any, global warming gas once they're up and running, they're very elegant. They generate a lot of power. Now, if we could generate nuclear power with thorium and develop the thorium cycle, then nuclear power plants would be incredibly safe. There would be no opportunity to make weapons and there'd be no opportunity for a meltdown. It's just too bad that as a species, we put all that effort into the uranium cycle when it should have been the thorium cycle from day one. Robert, the uranium cycle was chosen specifically because the byproduct of the creation of electrical energy using uranium is to create weapons-grade plutonium that you can use to make bombs with. That's the reason they chose it, is at the time, the government agenda was they needed to make nuclear weapons for the Cold War. When are we as a society going to wake up and say, hey, the Cold War is over. It's time to revisit the design of nuclear energy production and focus on thorium reactors, the liquid fluorides uh, thorium reactor, which I know you're familiar with, as am I. This is a way to generate electrical energy that doesn't create a byproduct, which leads to nuclear proliferation and, you know, dirty bombs and all this stuff. The technology has been known for more than 50 years. Why aren't we pursuing it and what could be done in order to get us to pursue it? Well, thank you very much for asking that question. Let me say this about that to quote Richard Nixon. The reason we haven't done it is we haven't done it. But India, for example, the, the nation of India has an enormous program working on the thorium cycle. Nuclear physicists in India see it as a way out. And there are a number of people looking at thorium. And this is the kind of thing that is best done by government. If the American government can say, let's put a man on the moon and then do it, or let's put a man on Mars and do it, most assuredly, American science alone or Chinese science alone could, should, and likely will develop a thorium cycle. And that gives you an example of sort of a medium-term, very elegant solution where you don't get weapons-grade waste, you won't get a meltdown, and just a better way to generate nuclear power. But, you know, the sun itself is a nuclear reactor. And, you know, we've all worshipped the sun. The ancient Egyptians called the sun Ra, the god. And then the Hindus in ancient times called god Ram, the same Ah. And that A sound, ah, A-H sound, appears in most names of the deity. And, you know, every time we went up there and worshipped the sun, that was nuclear power. The, the startling fact is that Mother Earth is also a nuclear reactor. The heat in the center of Mother Earth is generated by remnant amounts of uranium that are in the core of the Earth under enormous temperature and pressure that creates a naturally occurring fission reaction at the core of the Earth. The core of the Earth is about 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit, roughly the temperature of the surface of the sun. And this Earth that we live on is, has a heat source that will last several billion additional years, quite a long time in relation to us as a species. So the greatest source of energy is right beneath our feet. That's geothermal energy. And if we just drill down 20 kilometers or less, in many parts of this planet, if you go down one or two or three kilometers, there's a nearly infinite amount of heat with which we could generate power. So we can get power directly from the sun with solar cells. That's nuclear power of the sun itself captured in solar cells. And of course, the sun powers the wind. Some parts are hotter than others and cooler than others. So wind moves around and you can generate power with wind, the same as with tidal forces. 
you can generate tides. Uh, you can go to the thorium cycler. You can go to what I think is probably the most elegant answer, just geothermal power on a massive scale. Let's talk a little bit more about that geothermal power. As I understand it, the challenge here, uh, the, the way this works is you, you, you drill a hole in the ground, you pipe water or something down to a depth where there's enough heat that what comes back up is steam that can run a turbine. As I understand it, the challenge is you can't really drill the hole deep enough to really get to the, the real heat for some kind of technological problem. Now, you're a mining executive. You must understand this a lot better than I do. Is there a, a challenge here that we can overcome? What do we need to do in order to make geothermal mainstream as opposed to just kind of an, a, a sideshow, which is what I think it's been, at least economically? Wow, it's such an important question. Geothermal energy is in the earliest days of its infancy. What we actually do in geothermal energy is we drill in a place where there's hot granite or hot rocks, where heat is coming up from the mantle. The continents are like if you boil milk and you allow the milk to cool off, you get a skim of milk. It looks just like solidified milk floating on the, on the hot milk. Our continents are just paper-thin skin floating on a liquid center golf ball. And if you look at the diameter of the Earth and you compare the thickness of the continents floating on it, as only being about a maximum of 12 miles thick of solid rock, and below that it's liquid, there is an infinite amount of heat and enhanced energy below our feet. And the, the understanding that, you know, that the Earth is really a liquid center hot ball of molten metal that's really only been with us, you know, as a, as a concept that the average person understands in the last generation. Plate tectonics changed everything. Now, what we did in the past was we would drill a hole down where there are natural fractures in the rock. If you go to the geysers north of San Francisco, California, where there are several hundred megawatts of geothermal power, that is power generated in a fortuitous place where you can drill down and get these naturally occurring cracks in the earth where you can inject water. It gets very, very hot. It comes back as steam. The steam turns a turbine. The turbine makes electrical energy. Same process as nuclear power. In a nuclear power plant, you generate heat. The heat makes steam. The steam turns, you know, the generator. You get electrical energy into the grid. So up until now, we hunt in the crust of the earth for places where we can drill and recover geothermal power. But in most places, it doesn't work because we don't have the natural fractures in the rock. So what we need is a, a Nobel Prize winning technology. The Nobel Prize itself was named after what was his name, Alfred Nobel. And he got that prize for he made his money in dynamite. The idea that you could go underground and drive tunnels with dynamite made all kinds of things possible. When you build a hydroelectric dam, the tunnels that control the water were dynamited to build the, the Hoover Dam, for example. We need a new way to drive tunnels underground, a new disruptive methodology that would enable us to drive tunnels in hot rock would give humanity infinite free electrical energy with no global warming effects. And that's one of the projects that we're working with in our own private technological efforts. We think it's achievable. So there are large areas of rock in the United States, also in South, certainly in Chile, right up and down the Western Cordillera, from Chile to the West Coast, through Peru, up through Colombia, through Mexico, up the West Coast of the United States, up to Alaska, where you could drill into hot granite. And these granites are 30, 40, 50 miles in diameter. They have no porosity or permeability. They look like a, a tombstone, but they're super hot. They're uh, 250, 300 degrees centigrade. And they contain more energy than one could possibly imagine. You could power the United States off of the energy in these hot granites. If you could find a way to tunnel through that granite, pump water through that granite, allow it to turn into steam, because water boils at 100 degrees C. So at 200 or 300 degrees C, you get steam, that steam would come up to the surface, turn the generator, give you free electrical energy. And then, of course, when the steam cools off, it condenses to water, which would be 
re-injected in a closed loop. No global warming effects. 24 hours a day. Unlimited free electrical energy, courtesy of Mother Earth, who is herself a nuclear reactor at her very core and essence. To me, that's the most, that would be the most elegant long-term solution to the problem. And why didn't that happen 50 years ago? Is the challenge that we just don't know how to drill a hole deep enough? Or is it that we don't know how to drill holes in very hot rock? Why can't we already do this? Well, how long have we been drilling anything? You know, we haven't done much drilling as a, as a species. We drill oil wells. Well, that's very recent in human history. When we found oil in Pennsylvania, the first gushers, very, very primitive drilling technology, in the early days of the oil and gas industry compared to what we have today. Today, the super majors, they drill you know, incredible deep wells and overpressurized reservoirs. But the fundamental technology has not changed. You have a, a steel drill stem that rotates and puts pressure on a drill bit, which usually has industrial diamonds in the face of the drill bit. And they last a certain period of time. Every once in a while, you have to pull that drill steel out of the ground and maybe one or two or three or four miles of drill steel, and you have to replace the drill bit because it wears out. So you're putting enormous pressure at the bottom of the drill hole in a rotating tool, and the friction and the heat generated by that tool and the pressure causes the rock to fracture, and it's pulled back to the surface with drilling mud. And and so eventually, the material in the hole, the rock is reduced to dust, wet dust or mud in this case, and brought back to the surface. And we haven't really changed the way we drill very much in 100 years. We've just, it's very much like the internal combustion engine. The first internal combustion engine was just like a corn popper compared to a turbocharged Porsche today. The internal combustion engine became much more sophisticated. You know, you get a 12-cylinder beautiful Mercedes-Benz or 12-cylinder Bentley internal combustion engine. It's massively evolved from the first internal combustion engine. But the fundamental technology doesn't change until you electrify the car. Then you just throw the whole damn engine away. It's a totally different system. We need an entirely new way to drill through rock. If we can develop an entirely new way to drill through rock, by definition, we will release unlimited energy for this planet. And I mean unlimited, without any global warming effects. I still don't understand where the challenge specifically lies. Using the latest and greatest oil drilling technology, why can't you use the the best oil rig that's on the market and just drill that hole that you want to drill into your 300-degree C marble that uh, or, or granite formation that has all this heat in it that you want to use for geothermal energy? Is the oil rig just can't drill into that kind of rock? What, what's the problem? Okay, we're going to explain this. Um, when you had an internal combustion engine and you grew up as a kid, you, were, you had a Chevy 327-inch cubic inch V8 engine, you always had a radiator in front of the engine. And that radiator was made out of copper. There were lots of copper foils in there. And the job of the radiator was to cool the engine. When you're driving down the highway at 60 miles an hour, that cool air would hit the radiator and there'd be a large amount of surface area of copper so that the air would cool the hot water in that radiator. And then it was discovered that you could cool the engine better with propylene glycol than water. You'd add something to your radiator fluid and you'd get even better cooling. And and you know that if your radiator failed, the engine overheated and died. You'd always see, you just remember it in the old days when people get something wrong with their radiator. So it's all about surface contact. When you just drill one oil well into hot rock, you just don't have enough contact between that six or eight, eight inch diameter drill hole and the rock. You need, you need hundreds of miles of contact. So what you need to envision is a sort of Pac-Man robot that can drive hundreds of miles of tunnels through that hot rock endlessly, 24 hours a day, just quietly drilling away, generating tunnels one, two, three, four, five, six feet in diameter in very hot rock, so that you have a very large volume of water that can get in contact with that rock. Drilling one well is not going to do it. 
If you're just drilling narrow little pinpricks in the earth, you'd have to drill tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of those wells. That won't work. And you want these wells to be horizontal. You want to design them to optimize the heat recovery of the reservoir, a lot like, a, like the radiator in the car, but only in the reverse. So if you could imagine building a giant radiator in the earth where there's a lot of contact between the hot rock and the water with fins, that's sort of a design like that, then you can suck an infinite amount of heat out of the core of the earth because the earth is never going to cool off at the scale that we would be using geothermal energy. There is such an immense amount of heat generated by the nuclear reaction. You've seen the Mauna Lea volcano in Hawaii, for example. You just think of the heat in a volcano as you go to the center of the earth. There's trillions of times more energy than we need as a species. If we could just figure out a better way to tunnel in, in hot granite in the earth. This is an example of what our group thinks is a rational response to the problem. And I think at the scale of the Manhattan Project, during World War II, the American government said, let's go out and build an atom bomb. Let's put the greatest minds of our generation to it, led by, say, Robert Oppenheimer and other great physicists. Or John F. Kennedy said, let's put a man on the moon. And damn it, we did it. I, I can't think of any reason why, at the scale of the Department of Energy of the United States government or the Japanese government or the Chinese government or the European Economic Union, we don't have enough wealth as a species to solve the problem. Just go in there and figure out how to autonomously tunnel in hot, dry granite, and we will have an infinite amount of electrical energy with no global warming effects. So that's an alternate way of doing it to, say, the thorium cycle. Another way to do it is to generate fusion. A lot of people are working uh, on fusion. They want to do something that mimics the way the sun generates power a very sophisticated system. Most of my friends that are plasma physicists say that's going to be an extremely difficult undertaking. It might happen in the next five or 10 years and then solve the problem. But one way or another, I think there's enough concern on a global level now that I'm sure that if we extended our lifetime, 50 years, all of us, we will see a solution to the generation of endless, clean no global warming effects, electrical energy. And then an electric car is the real thing. You know, At that point, it's doing more than just cleaning the urban air. It's actually finding a way to get you from point A to point B with no global warming effects. But the entire ecosystem, cradle to grave, sperm to germ, has to be revolutionized. Okay, so the major themes that I'm hearing is electrical energy generation and then transmission to where it's needed is the way to go. And the way to generate that electricity, ultimately, you say, best choice, geothermal. Doesn't involve anything other than the fact that we so far haven't been able to figure out how to drill large diameter, wide bore holes in very hot, deep granite. If we could just figure out that Pac-Man tool that can go down and drill a radiator inside the Earth's crust and, and basically drill those, those pipelines through granite that is much warmer than the surface of the Earth, that gives us virtually unlimited energy. That's your number one choice. Your number two choice, it sounds like, is nuclear, but not uranium-fired nuclear, something like the thorium cycle, which eliminates the risk of meltdowns and doesn't create the nuclear proliferation challenge of creating all these weapons-grade byproducts as a result of producing the energy. Robert, I've got a whole lot more I want to ask you about, but it's clear now that it's going to take two full podcast episodes to really do justice to this subject. Let's cut it off here for this week, and we'll air the second half next week. And let's plan to start with the question of why the environmental community is so focused on wind and solar when you're saying that the real opportunity for a truly sustainable green energy economy actually centers more on modernizing and advancing geothermal technology. But right now, I want to bring Michelle Danity back to wrap up this week's episode.
Eric, that was a terrific interview with Robert Friedland. I was particularly intrigued by Robert's comments on building a Pac-Man-like horizontal tunnel to tap the world's endless energy resources. I think it's an amazing thing to look at the oldest of things and think about how they will revolutionize what's coming up next. We hear about wind and sun, but we rarely hear about mining and relating to the raw materials that our earth has to offer. So I'm really excited to hear what's coming up next. Well, Michelle, great minds think alike because my reaction to part one was exactly where yours is, which is, wow, unlimited amounts of green energy with no waste. All we have to do is learn how to drill larger diameter holes in the ground. And it's no insignificant undertaking. I don't mean to minimize it. We're talking about drilling miles through rock, hard, solid rock, and it's rock that's that's super hot, that's several hundred degrees Celsius, which makes the, the drilling challenge much bigger. But look, we put men on the moon 50 years ago. We got to be able to figure out how to drill holes in rocks. And that's all we really have to do in order to completely change the world we live in and enable the generation of enough electricity to recharge all the electric vehicles that we could ever possibly build. And the the fact that I think, I'm going to editorialize here, hopefully we don't lose too many listeners over it, but frankly, I think that the environmental movement, if you will, kind of has a maturity problem. We, We have people who have the best of intentions. And I give them credit for being way ahead of the rest of society and having those good intentions earlier than the rest of us, by decades in some cases. But they get this idea that, you know, the mining industry is the enemy. That's anti-green. We have to shut it down. And that's just nonsense. The best way that we can get unlimited amounts of completely green energy is to refocus the mining industry on taking what they've learned about horizontal drilling of oil wells, figure out how to make those drill bits both larger diameter and capable of drilling those large diameter lateral holes, which they can already do the lateral drilling. We need to be able to do it in super hot 400 degree granite. If we can figure that out, we've completely solved the energy problem for humanity. We need to engage these industries that have been causing the problems and get them refocused on being part of the solution, not treat them like the enemy. And I I think the same thing, quite frankly, is true of the nuclear industry. I've got people, an ex-girlfriend of mine literally has PhD educated parents who refuse to have a microwave oven in their home because they're freaked out about radiation. This is emotion taking over what should be brainwaves. You need to recognize that, yeah, there's been a huge number of problems and accidents with these uranium-powered nuclear power plants that can melt down. The thorium cycle was invented like 60 years ago and tested and proven, and we didn't choose to use it for one specific reason, which is at the time, the priority was we wanted those byproducts to make bombs with. Now that we don't want the bombs, thorium's the obvious choice, and we're not pursuing it. And I think a big reason for that is that so much of the green revolution part of society is anti-nuclear just because it sounds like a bad thing. We need to recognize that there's good nuclear and bad nuclear and get rid of the bad nuclear and replace it with good nuclear. I think the other thing that that he touches on that I found so intriguing was looking at what is the problem that we're trying to solve and how are we solving? What is good? What is a better world? So understanding exactly as you've said, there's a downside, there's a dark side to certain energy and the way that we've conceived of it in the past. We've looked at individualism versus collectivism and and collective power versus individual generation and storage of power into a localized world. And understanding the virus, if you will, of some of this technology and how it spreads and, and some of the unintended consequences. I think that's what really has sort of teased me about a lot of Robert Friedland's thinking. Michelle, I couldn't agree more, but I want to move on now and talk about our growth plans for the Smarter Markets podcast itself. We're adding two new hosts to the team, starting with you, Michelle, and our plan is to begin alternating hosts 
from one episode to the next. In order to broaden the subject matter and expertise, we bring our listeners each week here on Smarter Markets. But before we even get into Michelle's role and the type of interviews she'll be adding to our programming, let's start by introducing Michelle herself to those of you who don't already know her as the co-author of Privacy Engineers Manifesto and the current or previous chief privacy officer of every huge tech company you ever heard of, from Sun to Oracle to McAfee, Intel to Cisco. Michelle, please tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and why our sponsor, Abex Technologies, invited you to join the Smarter Markets hosting team. Thank you so much. My background, as you've said, I've been in every major infrastructure from Sun to Oracle, McAfee Intel, Cisco, and now I'm the, the chief executive officer of a startup company called Zen Data Privacy. I really take an approach to privacy and technology and digital currency as sort of one in the same of the evolution of intellectual property. So just as we're talking about resources, some of which are limited as our fossil fuels, and some are limitless, such as the geothermal energy beneath our very feet. We also can look at the digital assets as being limited in insights, perhaps limited in access because we haven't built in the appropriate digital frameworks around them necessarily, but also limit less in understanding how we interrelate to each other as a species, to the planet and to our worlds, leveraging the gifts of digital. Well, Michelle, I'd love to talk to you sometime more about the digital currency privacy aspects of it, because frankly, I'm scared about what's coming next. But obviously, with your background in data privacy and technology generally, I can imagine you're going to be able to expand the scope of our Smarter Markets programming considerably. Do you have anyone lined up for your first interview? I do. I'm super excited. My very first interview is none other than the great Jim Whitehurst, who currently acts as president of IBM, a small tech company you might have heard of in the past. And he was formerly the CEO of Red Hat, which was its own open source revolution. So I'm really excited to share that conversation with the listeners. Wow. President of IBM. Well, I still got Robert Friedland, so I don't know. I, I guess we'll be tied. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> you can't beat Robert. I can't wait to hear that particular interview. But as for next week's show, we're going to be airing part two of today's interview with Robert Friedland. So be sure to tune in again for part two next week right here on Smarter Markets. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. And I'm Michelle Dennity. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.